Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. In this episode, we're talking strategy with one of the smartest brains in the world of strategy, Joe Arden, who is Chief Strategy Officer at Ogilvy UK. Uh, we caught up to find out what is the role of strategy in the creative process? Do we need to put the fun back into advertising? And what does she think of purpose? And have we taken purpose too far? This is a brilliant episode. We cover a lot. I know you're going to enjoy this. This is my conversation with Joe Arden. Joe Arden, welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on here. So let's talk all things strategy. That, uh, let's do that. How does someone get into this world of strategy and advertising? How do you get into this? Well, this is this is quite a, a soapbox moment for me because I think that at the moment it's quite difficult, and I think it has been overly difficult for too long. So I'm just going to talk about my winding path into strategy in the hope that people will listen to it and go, okay, it doesn't need to be difficult. So uh, very potted history. Did a women's studies degree, amazing. Did a marketing master's, worked in recruitment, uh, learned lots of valuable lessons from that. Then worked in uh, business development for advertising agencies. Then went into Iris, which is an agency, as you know, uh, and then made my way into a strategy role within Iris and then moved and sort of since then have followed a more traditional strategy path. But I don't think I had a strategy job title until I was in my 30s, probably. And I just think we need to be a bit more open-minded that you don't need to start when you leave uni and get into it. So quite a winding path, really. And for those people listening, what does a chief strategy officer do? Like, what's your kind of role in the organisation? Uh, I'm going to completely whip people's assumptions away about how <laughs> about some of the things that you don't do anymore. 100% you are still writing pitch decks and working on client business and all the stuff that you do when you're a strategist. It's a broader role, right? So it's about agency leadership as much as it is about uh, the client work. I sort of divide it up roughly into, into three bits. So one is about business strategy for the agency itself. One is about client strategy for the clients we work with. And then the other bit is about developing the strategic skill sets of the team that work for you. And each week can bring a different blend and intensity of any of those things. So what makes a really, really good chief strategy officer? Um, I'm going to ask you this in a second, but I think I have been thinking about it. Uh, and uh, first up, I'm just going to say that I think I'm pretty good chief strategy officer and I've got lots of peers that I think are amazing. I guess the thing that I admire in them that I think makes them good uh, is generosity. And I mean that in generosity of giving your time to things. So the people piece is really important generosity of thinking about clients' problems and about how our industry evolves and also generosity of credit. And the CSOs that I think maybe, and there's fewer of them now that I don't like, are those that think that they are the people that are doing everything, making the work, you know, doing all the important stuff. It's We are in a team sport. So I would say generosity. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great to know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've never worked in an agency, but certainly from a client perspective, that probably the best times I've worked with CSOs have been really when I've got them involved in a really knotty business problem right early. Because it, it's often, from a client point of view, you often, you often sort of do your brand planning on your own. You know, you, you get your budget signed off and then eventually you kind of brief the agency on a very specific, here's my communication brief. But the best times actually have been when I'm really in the shit. Like I'm really facing a, 
a, a proper challenge. I remember, you know, without going into the muck and bullets of it, I work on a rather well-known brand and um, it was really in the shit. And I got like, I got the uh, chief strategy officer from Grey, Lillian, who's absolutely amazing. Carolyn, who is the ECD. And then Gavin, who is kind of head, head of my PR team. And um, we basically kind of said, right, every single week, we're going to have this, like, we call it mission control. It's like a war room. And as Gavin came up with the idea, he said, let's treat this like an election, right? This is the day in which we have to convince the public that the brand is back, right? We, we painted the, you know, painted it on the wall. In fact, we did have a, a room which, you know, had all the kind of post-it notes on and stuff like that. And we just met every week. And what was lovely about it is, like, everyone had a say and it was it was we were united by the business problem, not necessarily the comms brief or the creative challenge. It was the business problem. And and Lillian, who is smartest cookie I've ever met, I mean, she's just razor sharp. She brought so much clarity to because because I guess for her, she was outside the company, had the perspective of the whole industry and the what's going on. I was obviously up to my you know up to my eyeballs in yeah. the internal issues, and she just brought beautiful clarity to it and go really precision about what are we trying to do? What's the problem? How could we solve it? You know, and, and helping us to think through. And that that clarity really made a difference. Then Carolyn, you know, then came up with the idea. And the idea was really a positioning for the entire brand that the entire company then got behind and, and really created a whole movement, really, that was so much bigger than if we'd waited until... Like we just go, okay, we want to make an ad. And, yeah, you know, do something you know, with this. Yeah, be tax, yeah, you know, exactly. It, exactly. So, yeah, I, I think my top advice to any, any clients listening is bring your strategy team from your agency into the tough conversations, even with the board, you know, the really knotty briefs for the business yeah. and involve them in that stage. I think that's amazing to hear that. And um, I hope that clients can find the time to be able to do that because, you know, it's it's obviously the best way and I think it sounds like you've got loads of value out of that and I know for sure that the strategists will have got loads of value out of it because they want to expand what they think about and to be embedded in the business challenge. Uh, I worry that clients are stretched so far and we'll talk a bit in a second about how strategists are stretched but um, uh, making that time to do that I think is probably really valuable. Some of the projects that I've been on that I've loved most are when we've had a similar thing you know lots of the government work I've done has been cross-agency teams and the strategists have all got together in a room, you know, not really thinking about the, the challenge that is immediately at hand, but just the broader challenge, you know, the societal thing that we're trying to shift. And I just think loads of value happens in the margins of those conversations, it does. doesn't it? It's much more exciting. I mean, one, one tip I often give people in business development, actually, and it, it sounds stupidly simple, but few people do this, is go to, the, go to your customer and just ask them, what's the biggest single business problem you have today? And the reason I say that is if you can be, if you can help answer the thing that's keeping them awake at night, they're going to love you forever. I mean, but it's so agencies often, I think, stay in their lane and, and they're sort of thinking, well, we're, you know, we're here for comms or we're here for PR or we're here for activation. And, and just asking some of the basic business questions means that suddenly the answer you come up with and present is going to be way more relevant if you, you know, you've been involved in the, the difficult problem. hundred percent. And if, and if you do that and the client says, actually, I'd rather you stay in your lane. Yeah. And you can get well, back in it. And carry on as you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what I thought would be fun actually is um, given that you work for Ogilvy, mm-hmm. I, I was amusing myself the other day on some famous David Ogilvy quotes. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd use this as a, as a rough, you know, kind of guide for our conversation. Um, the first thought I'd, I'd put to you was, um, I, I love this quote, make your thinking as funny as possible. 
Now, um, my colleague Orlando has got this chart, almost like the death of humour in advertising, you know, the last 15 years. I'm very seems familiar to have gone with down. that chart, you know, like, you know, yes. Must have appeared in a presentation <laughs> or two. And it reminded me of some fun we had last year on the System 1 database where I was looking at different categories. And these are all kind of grown-up serious categories, like, you know, mobile phones and technology. And I noticed something really funny, that actually, in all the categories, the winning ad often was quite non-serious, right? So, I mean, I think the best phone ad had a dancing pony in it. The best kind of technical ad had a, I think it was a flying ostrich and, you know, the best insurance has got a talking dog, you know, Um, and the best car ad, in fact, had had a cake in it. You know, is there something we're missing, do you think, about the role of fun, entertainment, humour? And maybe we need to take ourselves a bit less seriously then. I mean, it's so strange, isn't it, given that if you think about the world of dating, Uh, The thing that people most want from a prospective partner is good sense of humour. And then in advertising or communications, we kind of forget about that and start, you know, either being overly informative or just taking ourselves very sincerely. There's a a research agency, one of your competitors, uh, called The Nursery, who did a brilliant thing. Uh, You'll probably be familiar with this. I know Orlando is, uh, which was looking at... um, uh, the sense of humour across the UK and they did this great thing where they came into agencies and you all did a test and the, they determined which sense of humour you had and the point of it was to tell us that actually the UK is united by our love of very juvenile slapstick humour and we find it funny it's like you know if you think about all the classic TV comedies uh, like Only Fools and Horses and the bar scene and the chandelier and all of that stuff we find things funny and I think it's one of the great things about about the UK that we are united by by a sense of levity so yeah I think we do take ourselves too seriously and uh, and what I love about the examples that you've given is that they immediately make you smile and I know what brand you're talking about so back to the business case if we're here to try and build salience and make people remember the brands that we're advertising humor is a really great way to do that that's so so true if i said to you name me a mobile phone that has 16 megapixel camera you're gonna be like well all of them you know, name me a phone <laughs> yeah. with a dancing pony. And you know, I know which exactly. one it is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And it's really important. And I just think there is. Um, uh, why would you not want to entertain at the same time? And I know that it's not relevant for all topics. And you know, some of them you do need to. And I've done quite a bit of charity stuff over the years. Um, and you need to allow yourself room to be serious. Not all the time, actually, with charity. But um, I just think the vast majority of the time, why would you not think about something which is fun? Working in an agency, you can tell when there's a script on the table in a creative review and, you know, somebody reads it, one of the creatives reads it, and it's got that real glint in the eye that immediately people are much more excited about it. So, well, I yeah. think there's another Ogilvy quote along the lines of, if we're not having fun, we're not making great work, which I thought, I want to go and work for that guy. <laughs> that <laughs> Some, sounds like a good... Somebody you know. internally emailed me that literally two days ago, and I think it is a good reminder that... Uh, we're in such a privileged position. Our industry is fun. It delivers business value. We work largely with nice people. Like, you know, I can count on one hand the people that I've met who aren't in our industry. And the sort of alchemy of that all coming together is why we have got, you know, why we deliver what to we do. your vice chairman, by the way, yeah. alchemy. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> You're welcome, Rory. That's exactly. Checks in the post. Um Well, talking of the graph, okay, Mm -hmm. so uh, the graph has got humour going down and purpose going up. It's almost like, you know, literally crossing over. What's your point of view on purpose in advertising? Yeah, it's a it, it's a tricky one. I mean, first of all, the word just means nothing now. And I think that's a, that we need to tackle that because people just throw around the word purpose with absolutely no shared understanding of what that means. And if one of the jobs of a strategist is to bring clarity, 
I feel like my gift to the world might be to get rid of that world, uh, get rid of that word and to, uh, to replace it with something else. Now, I think the way in which we're probably talking about it here is pro-social purpose. So something which brings an added benefit to society or has a point of view on the world or maybe has a bit of an activist agenda. And I think that there are some examples and some campaigns and some brands where that is super relevant and they do a brilliant job of maybe changing people's hearts and minds. At Ogilvy, we've got a very long running relationship with Dove, as everybody knows. Uh, and I think the work they do on on purpose is incredible. And I thought that before I joined. I'm, I'm not involved with it, but I, I think it is incredible. That said, I think there's lots of other brands uh, who uh, take sort of short-term points of view, jump on a bandwagon, uh, do things which are very surface level, don't have any integrity. The purpose isn't hardwired into their core business practice. And I think some of those campaigns are some of the worst work I've ever seen. And it, and it actively makes me furious when they get awarded because I just think... If they have no integrity, why are we applauding them? I also don't think that purpose and humour need to be mutually exclusive. Uh, and I love to see work which brings those two things together. And I actually think there's a bit of a gap there. You know, if you think about the conversations we have, the difficult one-on-one -on -one conversations we have throughout life, they're often made better by a bit of levity and a bit of humour. So why would we not translate that into... As Yolanda's got a phrase, I, th I think he's quoting somebody else that says what's too serious to be said can be sung. And I, I, that's quite clever, actually, because it, 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 in a way it'd be a bit like with humour, isn't it? What's too difficult to be said can be, can be joked, which feels, you know, feels a bit awkward, doesn't it? But actually, there's some, I think there's some truth in it. You can tackle some pretty chunky things. You can, with, with some... if it's done with respect and it's not making light of very serious things, but treating it with lightness. Those are two quite different things, mm. I think. Mm. Now, you mentioned awards. Another David O'Gree quote, probably my favourite, which, which it, you know, <laughs> given being a former CMO here, if it doesn't sell, it wasn't creative, mm -hmm. which I, the longer version of that was when I write an ad, I don't want you to tell me if you find it creative. I want you to find it so interesting you go out and buy the product. Um, do you think in our, you know, focus on purpose, have we lost the cell? So I think probably the, the obsession with purpose is over inflated because it makes a nice headline. You know, people in our industry absolutely love a crisis, crisis narrative, <laughs> which I find quite funny about us. You know, we're so dramatic about everything. So I think there is less purpose work if you brought together all of the communications that were put out into the world by all of the people we represent, the brands we represent. I think purpose makes up a way smaller percentage than people believe it does. Yeah. The counterpoint to that is that, um, no, I don't think we've lost the sell because we are, without question, selling lots of stuff. And, you know, that may be a problem in some ways. But most of the work that we do is designed to move products off shelf, to get people to click buy, to get people to do things and take action. And I believe that it does do that. It shows up less often in the creative awards and it shows up less often, I guess, in the headlines um, because... Um, it's just there doing the hardworking job of bringing commercial value. So I don't think purpose has got in the way of the sell. Um, I can understand why people get the knickers in a twist about yeah. it. And that's a very, very valid point of view. And I think it's quite healthy for them to bring that debate to the table. But I think it's somewhat of a inflated well, let, 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 let's try and see if we can uh, get through the weeds on this one, because obviously, you know, I think you talk about crisis. Yeah. Peter Field's famous crisis in creativity. Yeah. I know at System One, we've been testing can line winners for 10 years. And in fact, last year, they actually got to a score that was no better than the average on our database. Mm. 
Orlando's showing we're becoming more left brains, more sort of activation. We're doing less of the brand building work. It doesn't look good, does it, when you look at the data in that way? Well, I think the, I think the data is part of the problem. So the, you've mentioned two things there, which are actually different and we don't treat them as such. And, and in fact, the, the whole conversation about uh, the crisis in creative effectiveness tends to conflate a few different things. First thing you mentioned was can Lion be measured in, in the in the database and doing no better uh, than work that hasn't been creatively awarded at CAN. Lots of work that's awarded at CAN is there for, I would argue, a different reason. And it's to show the boundaries and the experimentation and the strength of our creative muscle within agencies and brands around the world. It is a really good place to showcase the, the, the sort of extent of human imagination. And I think it does a really great job of that. So yes, lots of, lots of things are really tactical. And I know that every year, everybody you know, gets really worked up about, well, that didn't really run, or it only had one media placement, or it's cam spam. And, you know, and I can understand that. And as a strategist, I definitely have been on that side of the fence uh, about certain uh, entries. But I think we would be denying ourselves part of the magic of our industry if we said that there's no room for, for creative exploration. And I think CAN does that really well. The other part of the equation is that we are unquestionably uh, using more short-term tactics. So driving sales, um, using media, and therefore the creative content that goes in that media, which is designed to have an immediate response. And that has a very worrying trend when it comes to being measured against long-term effectiveness. But they're two different things. You're absolutely right. In fact, you're spot on. The data exactly says that. So um, we've been measuring STAR, which is the long-term mm. brand with potential. That's been going down. Spike last year was at highest ever, which is our short-term activation. Yeah. What's really interesting is what we noticed is that... Um, the intensity of emotion created by advertising at Cannes is very, very high. But what, what's typical is it's using negative emotions to make points. So a lot of it's quite activist, it's quite challenging, a lot of charity ads, a lot of purpose-driven ads. And what they're doing is they're designed to be noticed and designed to be acted on in the short term. And in that sense, they're doing very well. So I think what it is, I mean, to try and sort of solve it, maybe if, if there was a solve, was it, maybe it's a crisis in creatively awarded campaigns in terms of long-term brand building, but but what's happened is the voting agenda or the, the judging agenda has changed and it's more looking at impact on society. It's looking at, you know, kind of short-term activation, isn't it, rather yeah. than what might traditionally have been the brand building kind of campaigns. Yeah, it's looking at both those things. It's looking at impact yeah. on society and it's and it's also looking at short short-term spike. And I don't I kind of I mean, I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's a trend. Or a trend, a, or... yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I it's think... one half of the chart, isn't it? Yeah. The other half of the chart's doing that. Yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that there is a um, there's a particular trend, and goodness knows how long it'll go on for, maybe it'll be another 10 years or so, about the type of work that gets creatively awarded. I think it's really great that CAN are also adding a, a creative effectiveness and a creative strategy category. And I think being able to look at stuff that's been awarded uh, in a creative creative lion space and see whether you can also make a case for its effectiveness is going to be quite an interesting test test for strategists but also test for data i think that's i think it's a genius move by walk i have to say i credit to them because i've won two cans in my career Ooh. right but <laughs> just putting that out there by the way listeners you know, but was never invited what i know it's outrageous isn't it How so come? i know what well, I, I i literally was like why is my agency not returning my calls and then, and then literally about a week later, oh, John, where were you? And I'm like, I didn't get invited. I know, it's outrageous. That's terrible, unless it was us. It wasn't us, was it? No, it wasn't. No, no, it's fine. It's fine, actually. 
But and, and of course, you know, they're very unhappy with you. Like anyway. But the point was, it'd be very hard for me as as a client to justify a week going to kind of creative mm. awards and you know, week drinking rose on the quasette, right? However, if you've got an effectiveness track that is sharing all the best practice and so on, so, well, that sounds more like an educational trip. So I think it's quite clever. I, I think it could help kind of bring, you know, bring clients along. At the end of the day, clients are paying for the work, aren't they? And they want the work yes. to be celebrated and they want the work to work. So I think it's a neat trick. It's if you, a neat if trick. you can bring the both together and have one rub off from the other, I think that's quite cool. You think it's moved out of the travelling and expenses budget part into the into training, the training which is much part. bigger, much, much bigger. Yes, exactly. Um, I would love to uh, I would love to explore that with, yeah, with yeah, Mark yeah, and yeah. find out. I think so. Yeah, I think it so. Is, it is interesting. And it's, uh, I mean, I, I just think we've got, we've got some great effectiveness awards, competitions, IPA, obviously, yeah. gold standard, amazing. Um, we've got FEs, obviously. You're a judge on that, aren't you? Yeah, so I'm convening this next year's, yeah. um, which is so it's every two years. So we'll we'll kick that off at the end of the year at FWorks, and it's really it's important and actually important for for people to sort of prove the effectiveness of their of their work. Also important to build the database because obviously lots of the stuff we're talking about is based on the IPA data bank, and having that, despite all of my reservations about sometimes how get that data gets manipulated, but there's no doubt that having that data is a really good thing. And what a legacy to build as well. I mean, I think that's one of the many things I love about our industry is that we're thinking about what the people who come after us will be able to draw on. And that's a really great thing to have. Now, there is one award that most people don't want to win, right? Which now I know you're a campaign uh, columnist, aren't you? Yes. Turkey of the week, and it's coming back. What's your, uh, what's your views on that? I'm not into it. I'm not, and I think uh, I think Rick Brim wrote in campaign the reasons why I'm not into it. I mean, I guess to summarise, it's there's so much goes into making an ad, and there it is. Turkey of the week is always pretty much ads, TV ads generally. There's so much that goes into that. So many things that can go wrong. Uh, so many missteps. But also, the people at campaign aren't. They're not reading the brief. They don't know what the intent was. They don't know what happened along the process. Um, I think we forget sometimes that uh, people who work in agencies work really hard. You know, I mean, within the context of being in a, you know, a, a job which is nice, they work really hard, long hours, you know, w- way more, I think, than some people realise. Blood, sweat and tears. It's a confidence game. We, you know, we're, we all are all dependent on having the confidence to put an opinion across, to have the imagination, to um, put creativity down on paper. And I just think it's a bit snarky. I'm like, oh, turkey of the week, thanks. Thanks for those three weeks where I didn't go home and, you know, I was on a shoot where it was absolutely knackered the whole time. I just don't know. I just don't think we've got the right to do that. I attempted to turn it into an accolade. So um, I got a call. I think it was Matt Bamford Bowles at the Elephant Room. Is, is that, I think that's the way it works. Anyway, and I got I got this message from him and he, he, he was livid, absolutely livid. And I said, dude, what's happened, right? He, he goes, I cannot believe Aussie Kevin the Carrot has just been named Turkey of the Week, right? And he said... Can you tell me how it scored on System 1? And this is about three or four years ago, just as they were kind of rising to prominence. And at the time, it was a four star. It was in the top three or four percent on our database. Like, pretty damn good. Anyway, it it, it got him going. See, this big post, it was like a campaign campaign to kind of take stop turkeys kind of thing. And it got some momentum. And I said, Matt, I'll go one better. You send me a list of every turkey and I will test every turkey for a year (laughs) on our database, right? It turns out the average turkey was three stars. No. It was better than 
the last 10 years of cans at long-term brand building. No. So, so I wrote this article for Marketing Week um, when uh, turkeys eat lions for breakfast kind of thing. Oh, I read it, yeah. Oh, you yeah, read yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, ironic that the one, you know, that the, the ads that were derided actually turned out to be winners in the end. So, you know, I, so anyone out there that's won a turkey? Yeah. Maybe wasn't so bad after. Well done. <laughs> well done. Um, I mean, yes. it also, but it just begs the question because you're, 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 and I'm a big fan of the system one uh, research methodology. But that's about real people, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So it's a, it's it's 150 people. Yeah. How do you feel about this ad, yeah. and does it make you happy? So, um, we've managed to correlate the response to that survey to uh, basically market share gains over the following year. So it's like the, um, you know, if you think about, you know, your share of voice, your media spend coupled with your creative effectiveness are the two things that helped it, you know, predict. And we've shown that it, the creative, unsurprisingly everybody, the creative quality matters as much as the media buy, you know, breaking (laughs) news. Thank goodness. I know, but everyone spends all the money on the media, don't they? And optimising that and clicks and reach and so on. You need to spend as much of the time making sure the creative works as well. Yeah, which I mean, hopefully we'll we'll continue to bang that drum and and land it. Because I do do worry sometimes about that ratio wildly changing. But with the Turkey of the Week, I mean, I think maybe maybe they need to just caveat it and say, in our opinion, it's Turkey of the Week. Maybe they do, actually. I don't know. Maybe that is in the text. Yeah, we can subvert it and go, turkeys, statistically, are more likely to go on to long-term success. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's good. I like it that you're giving the the, uh, agencies the ammunition to uh, go to their clients with that. Well, it sort of brings me on to another David Ogilvy quote, which is, the consumer's not a moron, she's your wife. Which I thought was brilliant. And, and and the longer form of it, which I always get this wrong because you have to kind of pay attention, is people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. Which is sort of why I work at System One, really, which is because it all boils down to do you like it or not, you know, yeah. you know, because you sit in focus groups and they'll tell you anything that you want you, know, you want them to say. Um are we as an industry getting better? Okay, let me ask you the question. How do we bring the audience into the creative process and make sure that we make work that effectively does what it needs to, which is win over the customer? Yeah, and I think it's got to it's got to get back to speaking to customers, hasn't it, and understanding them. Uh, one of the things that I um that I I sort of bemoan a little bit for strategists now starting out is that they are they're so required to be able to assimilate such huge swathes of data you know you can you could get as much data as you want about an audience you know their digital signals online their buying behavior their footfall in various stores where they live their demographics their opinions all sorts of data and it's a lot it's a lot for people to be able to bring together and I think that there is still no replacement for actually speaking to people you know speaking to real people um you know being in the supermarket going shopping doing research it doesn't need to be really expensive and structured you know i think just being part of the world uh, and the people that you're trying to appeal to is really important and i think because of the pressure to be able to understand big data sets and the time that requires i i worry that we limit our strategists and our, our you know creative people's ability to get out and just be a normal person because that is the best way to find out that's that's not to say that some of the you know the bigger data sets aren't handy but they lack the viscerality i think of understanding people our job is to bring the consumer into the room and i think one of the bits uh, that i like about the quote I mean, I don't like the word moron, I've got to be honest. Uh, and also the assumption that she's, <laughs> she's, she's, she's your, your wife. wife. Yeah. But anyway, of the time, uh, I think it is really important that you have that memory about it's somebody that I should like. 
Um, and there's been various great articles over the years. Andy Nairn did a really nice one for campaign. It probably is about 15 years ago uh, when we both worked on smoking cessation together. And it was about referring to our audiences. Um, I think it was probably C2DE hardened smokers. And it's like, wow, what a negative way to talk about the audience that you're trying to get to behave in a certain way. I mean, I always think that you you do your best work when you kind of fall in love with the audience you're talking to. And why not? They're people. You know, it's it's like the general public are fascinating. One of the uh, things we talked about this before, weren't we? But one of the things that I think is very useful for a strategist is to just uh, consume like normal culture, like, you know, to read magazines, to watch maths. Maths, um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, to just like do not like normal stuff. I think it can be and historically has been perceived as quite a highbrow pursuit being in strategy. And I kind of hate, I hate that. We've got some super intelligent people and that is uh, right. They should be. Um I don't think you need to be a, you know, proverbial rocket scientist to do the job. I think sometimes it helps if you're not, if you've worked in a sales job or, you know, you're just a bit more tuned into what people are thinking and feeling. But yeah, like fall in love with the consumer. I mean, we're, we're asking them to buy our products or to, you know, be some way persuaded by our message. If you hold them at arm's length or treat them with derision or try and wrap them up in language, which is unfavorable, I think you're going to fail. Definitely. For everyone listening and watching, by the way, uh, maths is married at first sight Australia. <laughs> Quick plug for that. But if you if you know, you know. In, well, exactly. Yeah. Good point. I have to say, in my career, I'd say that the most success I've had is when I spent the least amount of time in the office in internal meetings, the most amount of time out with my customer. And you almost don't need to do the research if you know your customer, right? Decisions become so much easier if you go, well, I know what they think. I know what they do. I know why they buy. It just makes everything much easier. Talking about culture, another quote here as well. When people aren't having fun, they seldom do good work. I love that. I kind of read that and go, I want to work there, right? So you know, Ogilvy now, see so you're there. Is it, is it still, is it fun? Like what, what do you guys do to kind of, you know, make the work enjoyable? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the most fun. It's just, it's a, it's a brilliant culture. It's very, it's actually, um, it's actually unique culture in that way. You know, very, very people focused organization. I think that people enjoy each other's company seem to anyway. We're ambitious to do great work. And I think you can see that in our results, you know, and especially in our creative awards over the past year or so you can see we've got some real creative momentum but that has not been uh to the uh, detriment of people's lives uh and i think we've got a really good balance actually of people being in the office uh you know putting a shift in of course because that's what everyone does but also having a really good balance it feels like a fun place to work we've got rabbits in the office today i don't i don't it is easter by the way i don't know when this is going out that's not that's not just a regular thursday but it's we've got a lot of focus on training and development on people's mental health we've got really good networks of of support for people representing different groups i think that one of the one of the things about advertising is that it should be fun. I don't. I just don't think you can do it if you're like riddled with anxiety about the about the work that you're making. There should be a sense of, I guess, like restless ambition about it. And I think people should strive to do better. But I don't believe in packaging that up in fear. And and I think that the advertising industry sort of played on that historically. Uh, and I hope we've all realised that that was um, kind of weird. Um, and that isn't. That's not how it feels now. It, 
it does feel like we have to fight harder for this, though, doesn't it? Because, you know, we've got like remote workings. So we're not together. We've got more systems than we ever had before. Everything is processed down and broken down into constituent parts. Deadlines seem to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And then from a you know advertising perspective, we've got so many channels that we need to go out on and manage and social different social platforms and different media formats. And everything's broken down into into small parts, isn't it? And the complexity you know, and systems involved in, in that are just multiplying. So it feels like that becomes ever so much harder than it used to be. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And you, it would be very easy to be overwhelmed by that because, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you could do. And if you decided to embrace every trend, every, every process, every way of doing everything, every new source of data, you would never make anything good. So I think you have to just strip the excess from your mind and focus on the thing that's in front of you and that you need to do well. We're, we're a big agency and we talk about borderless creativity, which is brilliant. And, you know, in the, the sort of uh, the shorthand version of that means that we we create ideas which don't uh, get limited by, you know, channel that they show up in or or space that they are in in culture. Um, and we've got five different businesses and we all work together and it's brilliant. And, you know, the best stuff we do is, yes, it's a PR thing, but it also might be informed by behavioral science. That can sound like a lot to people. And what I really encourage people to do is to um, not be overwhelmed, but just to think through, what do I need for this particular task? What will make this task better? And to re- sort of um, repel the input overload that you can have. Because people aren't made to be able to hold all those things in their minds at the same time. Um, and also just to have fun with it. Uh, one, of, uh, one of my friend's um, daughters was doing her GCSEs recently. Gave her some unwarranted advice. She'd not asked for it, but I just popped it out there anyway when we're on a Zoom call. And I just said, put some pressure on the task, not on yourself. And I think that's what we've got to learn to do. Like, yeah, we do. We are required to be responsible with budgets and produce great work, which delivers impact. But that's a pressure on the task. That pressure doesn't need to be held in ourselves. You know, we can still allow ourselves a bit of levity and a bit of human connection along the way. I love that. And and I mean, I, I really believe passionately creativity can change the world. Creativity can change our businesses, you know, in dramatic ways. And if we don't create the space for it, we'll just be a slave to the deadline and a slave to the process, won't we? And how, in your experience, how do you create an environment around you that fosters great creative work? Uh, so I think strategists are required to be the optimists and I think that it generally attracts quite optimistic people um, or even, <laughs> even if they're not optimistic they they can dig that out from somewhere um, because I think we have to be the people who will see the solutions and see the opportunity you know we digest the challenge and then we regurgitate that back out as something which uh, leads to a really interesting solution and our role is to kind of move between the client and the account team and the creatives and and I think just keep everybody feeling like the, the things are possible so I think being an, an optimist helps with that in my role as an agency leader I think you've got to be the cheerleader you know and I think you've always got to remind yourself that uh, even if your day is not the best in the world and there's a lot of pressure everybody else doesn't need to see that you know they need to know that they're in a in a I think the phrase is psychologically secure space and I think that's right so hopefully hopefully that's what I do I mean you know I don't, I don't know you might get you might get food for coming back to go survey out the Ogilvy team right now <laughs> um, <laughs> but, scale one's but I think I think that's the right thing to do and then there's lots of soft things that sit around the outside yeah. of that but I think they're less important uh you know obviously it's it's great that um 
we have fun things in the office. But I think it's more about how we interact with each other and give each other respect. And again, that generosity and, you know, recognising work and recognising effort has got to be part of that because we all make a big contribution and we couldn't do it. That's one of the, the great things about all the jobs in advertising is that you can't kind of do it on your own. So you're reliant on somebody else and your relationship and the chemistry between you to make it good. Which is a nice thing. Uh, you mentioned a previous thing about, um, I think you said un, un, unwarranted advice there, didn't you? Before. <laughs> uh, see, let's pretend it's warranted advice. So what would you, what advice would you give, let's say your 21-year-old self who's starting out, wants to be doing a job like you're doing now? What advice would you give to yourself? It definitely is about the imposter syndrome. So when I first encountered people in, well, in advertising generally, but in strategy specifically, a lot of them were Oxbridge educated uh, you know, came from uh, lots of them were private school educated, actually. And I'm from a very normal town in the, in the northwest called Ashton Underline, which nobody's ever heard of. It sits in Lancashire. I had a fantastic time at school. I went to a comp. It was brilliant. I loved it. I thought it was the best place on earth. I didn't know when I came to London that there was such a thing as a good university. I thought it was like, well, you went to university and that in itself was good. <laughs> and then I got to London and it's like, oh, that's not the case. And there was all these things I didn't understand. And, you know, lots of rules about um, how you interact with people and about behaviour. And it's it's very difficult. And we make our industry uh, perversely complicated for people to navigate. And so feeling like you never quite fit in or you're a bit of an imposter or, you know, you're not doing quite a good enough job is, um, I think, common to all of us. I think it gets presented as being a a gender-specific problem. I don't really buy that. I think it's everybody. So my piece of advice, uh, and um, this this is going to sound really neggy, which is slightly off-brand, but um, is that as much as I think it's great to identify your heroes and aspire to be them, Kate Waters... You know oh, who you Kate. are. Love Kate. I know. Oh, big um, fan. And she probably is the person who I first sort of saw as a strategist and was like, wow, if I could be her yeah. one day. Uh, and she's she's a really good friend of mine. And that's, a, that's a, a great pleasure in my life that we're pals. So I've identified my heroes and there's lots of them, you know, Josh Bullmore, Michael Lee, Andy Nairn. There's some amazing people, media side, Rachel Peace. However, I think it's also good to look around you and go... I don't think that person's that great because actually you will find, I think, during your career that seniority, being in in the career for a long time, earning lots of money, you know, all of those markers of success sometimes don't necessarily mean that you're that great or that you put that much effort in. And I just think when you're having a bad day and you're like, I don't know if I'm good enough for this, looking around you and going, you're not that good either. At somebody, my, my, my version, it's quite good. My, my version of that is they're they're making it up as well. <laughs> yeah, which so most many people, people are. are. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of people feel like they have to be the expert. They have to have all their preparation done, and then you go, they don't actually know what they're talking about either. No. My my funniest imposter story actually, which is um, almost unbelievable, but I promise you this actually happened was um, when I was when I, I, I did a finance degree and then decided I want to go into marketing, and it's like uh, you know, but. Um, during my degree, we had to, we all, we all had to go and do like a six month placement, to, you know, a proper job to get experience, you see. And, um, I'd, uh, I'd run out of time. I hadn't, fa- I hadn't found a job. And then, um, basically I saw this advert and it was basically, uh, interview guinea pigs wanted 25 pounds. Right. And I thought, well, look, I haven't got a job. It's the summer. I've just finished my degree. I might as well, you know, I might as well kind of go and, uh, you know, go and do it. And it was, it was between my third and fourth years. So that's right. Anyway, so I went and it was just very grown up 
place. It was called Climate Benson. It was in Fenchurch Street, like proper investment bank, really like, you know, just, you know, thick carpets, glass building, you know, oak, oak walled, you know, rooms, all this very serious. Anyway, so I went in, I dressed in my suit, all the kind of thing, you know, and um, because it was a guinea pig interview, I thought, well, I've got to make something up. So I, I, I kind of invented this slightly backstory about, a, you know, about a business I ran and how successful I was. So anyway, so imagine me in the interview. I'm clearly making this thing up, right? So anyway, so we, we had this interview and I'm, I'm super overconfident at the end of it. And she says, oh, that was a great interview. Thank you very much. Gave me my £25 check. And I thought, brilliant. So went, didn't think anything of it. I got a phone call. Hi, it's Climate Benson here. Would you come back to do another interview? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to earn some earn 25 quid. I'll be there, right? So you can see where this is going, yeah, can't you? I can. So I go back in. I think it's the same thing. So I go back in thinking, oh, well, here we go again. This time they've brought the boss <laughs> in, right? So this, this really important guy walks in, you know, pinstripe suit. You know what it's like in the city 25 years ago. You know, anyway, so I just egg it even more. I just like, you know, just like I'm even more chill going, well, I'm getting paid for this. This is brilliant. Anyway, at the end of it, uh, by the way, this shows you how odd I am. Sal- average salaries at the time were like 12 and a half grand for mm-hmm. graduates. So this mm-hmm. is back in the sort of uh, mid-90s, whatever. Um, anyway, so at the end of the interview, they go, so um, how much do you want? And I'm thinking, hey, 25 we're quid. playing, right? <laughs> so I, I, no, I go, 25 grand, right? Which was double the graduate entry salary no, at the time, right? No. So I just said, I'm worth 25 grand. I wouldn't accept anything less. I think, I think this is role play, right? Anyway, and then they go, when can you start? And I'm going, well, obviously next week, right? And then, and then they say, okay, well, well, we'll send you the offer. And I'm thinking, at this point, I suddenly go, oh, shit. <laughs> I've actually done a job interview. And then I'm going, what even is the job? I'm thinking, but I can't confess because I might have just have got a job. My very first job was that. 25 grand, Climate Benson as a trading analyst on the trading floor. But the reason I come back to imposter syndrome was this. I got found out six months later because I obviously had to submit my degree in a suit. So I went to Brunel University in West yeah. London. So I like, you know, like you, I didn't do the research on the, the posh red brick, <laughs> you know, yeah. establishment universities. I didn't do that. Right. So I just went, being a saddo, I went, which university has the best employment statistics? And oh, it, I think that's good. Yeah. I was being, you know, Captain Sensible. Turns out it's Brunel University in West London. The reason being they sent everyone on these kind of, you know, get yourself a placement job and learn how it all works. And the head of HR, six months into my job, came up to me and said, can I just check something with you? I said, yeah, where did you go to university? And I said, Brunel. She goes, I thought so. And I was like, oh, what? What have I done? She goes, we don't hire from Brunel. She said, we only hire from four universities and that's not one of them. So how did you get the job? I was like, Okay, so it doesn't matter that I've done a great job for six months and oh I got hired an interview. And I thought, wow. That's and then dark. When, I, I, when I found out about it, what, it, it was really weird actually because what I, I then found out about the recruitment policy and how it actually works, despite my my black. But um, it turns out that it was just because they get so many applications, just they can choose to pick whoever they want, and so they were just like, so inundated. They just go, well, let's just draw the line at those those four universities, and we just limit it like that. Oh, and that's how it works. They I know. Get, yeah, they can get imagine? so many applications that they've they cho- can, they've they, chosen to not use yeah, any imagination yeah. at all. So, so in a way. By that point, by the way, by that point, I decided it wasn't for me. I wanted to go into marketing at this yeah. point. So, and, and I'd earned loads more money than I ever thought possible sort of thing. And I ended up working for Britvic for £12,500 a year. Had a great time. Took me about five years to <laughs> I 
get to the back to myself. Scramble back up the ladder. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I love that Finally it was get six months till you got found out there. Yeah, yeah, I survived six months. So there I you go. Ladies that. and gentlemen, it is possible to cheat the system. I'm not sure. Is that the lesson we wanted to leave people with? I'm not sure. We want to open the industry up to more people, don't we? So That's they don't, true. So they don't have to do what yeah. I did. I think the lesson is... If that, if you are open-minded and bring people in from diverse backgrounds, turns out they do a great job. That's we, not, damn it! I should, damn it! I should have said that, shouldn't I? Damn. Well, well done, Joe. Thank you for that. <laughs> it, it, there's also a bit of serendipity as well. I think you, something else I've learned is you sometimes just have to put yourself out there, and and good stuff happens when you do. So you know, just going along to the big, guinea pig interview, and I, I know I can't promise that happened to you. Obviously, it's very unlikely, but just you know, meeting people and so on. I mean. You must have found in your career that actually your network, you talked about a few people, is incredibly important. Yeah, it's so, it's so important. And I and I really I really make an effort to try and do the same for other people who are, just, are trying to come into the industry. So, uh, which is very time consuming, but I will try and meet pretty much anybody. I'm going to regret putting this on a podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, but, uh, <laughs> you've heard it here first. <laughs> but I do, you know, even if it's just that, like for a quick chat and, you know, often we don't have a suitable role, but I think just having a quick chat with somebody or give it, getting one of my team to have a conversation with people, I think just being like open and genuine and enthusiastic and uh, and hardworking, but you know, and finding the opportunities is useful. But I have benefited massively from uh, some wonderful bosses and wonderful people in in my career, uh, and I'm so grateful to them for you know at some points taking quite a big risk. Like when I took my job at Low, so Jane Asher, who uh, runs Twenty Three Red, who um, I don't know if you if you've met her, which brilliant, you know what? Like again, total hero. Um, she really gave me my first sort of proper serious strategy job and I'll be forever grateful for that. And I loved working with her. I mean, God, just such a role model. But then I went from there, which was a sort of fairly small agency at the time, maybe 35, 40 people, to Lowe, which was Mullen Lowe, which was way bigger. Uh, and I'm really grateful to, it was Dale Gal who was the chief exec there and then Tommy Knox. And I'm um, just called him Tommy Knox. That's so rude. Tom Knox. And I'm really grateful to those guys for, you know, giving me a chance and seeing that I could that I could do the job and hopefully I proved them right. I think I did. And then I've got the brilliant Fiona Gordon at my current place. So I think you do, that's what I mean about our industry is full of amazing people, people who can see the potential in each other. Uh, And I think that's to be celebrated. But I also really believe in kind of, you know, recognising that and mentioning them. Uh, yeah. opportunity. <laughs> well, good, good, good mentions. I love how you, you said my first serious strategy job. Maybe if we uh, followed David Ogilvie's advice, we'll make it a fun strategy job instead. Yes, true that. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of fun at 23 Red, but it was, it felt like it was, um, I guess, because we did a lot of government work and, you know, it's the first time I was leading a team. So I was head of strategy at the agency and, you know, I was like, okay, this is, this is my job now. I think it felt like that was the moment where I was like, right, I'm a stra- I am a strategist and this is my job and I'm going to do really really well at it you know I want to I want to be brilliant at it brilliant. and uh you know that's always that's always an ongoing journey isn't it it is brilliant well yeah, that's the perfect place to end because it, ladies and gentlemen if you want to get into strategy follow joe's advice and the stars will be in your sights yeah hopefully. thank you so much that's wonderful to have you thank you joe thanks for having me it's been My so pleasure. fun thanks john Hope you enjoyed the episode. I certainly did. It was great fun talking to Joe and catching up on all things to do with the industry. If you enjoyed that and you want to subscribe, please do wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. You can find me wherever you are at Uncensored CMO over on Twitter, YouTube, and I'm on LinkedIn at John Evans. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time.